0: This message was presented at the DYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.dycweb.org. We welcome you to the afternoon session of the sanctuary. And uh, for those just picking up, I waylaid on the previous session presentation so we got a little catching up to do here let's have prayer first we thank you lord for being with us and as we think about this important topic and how you've broken down the plan of salvation guide and direct us in jesus name amen so far we have suggested that sanctuary protocol was made by god in order to create a safe way for sinners to come into contact with him because his glory would destroy us. So it's not to make it hard, it's to make it possible. And this protocol starts at the gate, where we enter with thanksgiving. And of course, the gate, in a way, is Christ. I am the door. Uh, We enter with thanksgiving, not just like Cain, who was thankful for his fruits and vegetables and provisions, and you're, you're a nice guy, God, but acknowledging our guilt and thankful that God has made a way of escape. We come in faith, trusting that God is not pulling a Jehu to bait us into the sanctuary where he can then do away with us, that he actually will do what he has promised. We come voluntarily. God doesn't force you to come to the sanctuary. You come because you trust him. So it's an act of faith, not an act of merit. You come um, repentant and humble and with a substitute because you recognize there's a judicial penalty that you deserve and you are accepting God's way of using a substitute to pay that penalty. We then briefly talked about uh, the sacrifice and its sufficiency and that the issue was the atoning power of the sacrifice, not exactly which way you laid your hand on it. and uh, As long as you made contact and confess your sin, the power is there. And, uh, and so we kind of closed on that transfer, that renunciation of sin onto the sacrifice. I don't want it anymore. And uh, we're picking up the process here at this point. And again, in your prayer life, you come to the gate and you're thanking God and, and do all that stuff, and then you go to the confessional part of your prayer. And then uh, the next step here is that once the sacrifice is offered, by the way, when the sacrifice was offered, the sinner is not yet forgiven because you need a priest. continues the approach to God by going to the laver and then on into the holy place to the altar. And so the intercession of the priest is as much of need for the forgiveness of sin as is the sacrifice. And so the sinner remained at the altar while the priest went on to the laver. And I'm not going to say much about that because I ran out of time here. But almost everyone sees the laver with cleansing themes, so that we're asking for forgiveness but also seeking cleansing. It you know, doesn't do any good to be forgiven and just be a repeat offender without help. And so, um, uh, and so as the priest washes in your vision, you're asking God to wash you. I scheme it uh, this way. Again, we approach, the sinner approaches God through the gate, through the altar, through the laver, through the other altar. Uh, And from this point on, you're approaching through priests. So through the gate, through the sacrifice, through the priest. And you can pray your way through that sequence and talk to Christ as your priest about the cleansing and so forth and so on. Um, I want to talk a little more about the forgiveness process. So I'm going to skip the laver part. I've said enough about the cleansing, I think, for you to dig out. On your own. At least I thought I was. Here we go. <clears throat> the Golden Altar of Incense, very significant um, piece of furniture in this service because it is very, very closely associated with the Ark of the Covenant with only a veil between them. Um, It is so associated that in the book of Hebrews, Paul, if you accept Paul as the author of Hebrews, Paul seems to list the golden altar in the most holy place. And that's been a cause for tension because in the Old Testament it's clearly in the holy place and suddenly Paul seems to put it with the most holy place. And uh, the Greek is actually that the most holy place had or possessed the Ark. So it's less location than it is this association uh, that way. And from reading the Bible, just a little archaeological detail, our Bible stories tend to put the poles the wrong direction. And they would have been oriented this way, not sideways. You don't because this is your throne. You don't carry your king sideways. You carry him facing forward. And, uh, and in fact, hello, where is my, here we go. These texts talk about the poles being long enough when the Ark sat here that the tips of the poles stuck through the veil right next to the altar, almost like it was going to grab it and suck it in. And so you had this very close tie between the two, uh, with the golden altar here. Um. Now, in addition to this, the veil separating the two only went about two-thirds of the way up to the ceiling. So it wasn't a total division, again, emphasizing the connection of the two. And uh, the veil is there, in my estimation, to protect the priest from being destroyed by God's glory. The Shekinah was too bright. And so it's as if God veiled his face but left the eyes sticking out um, where we can make eye contact with the priest. So a very literal uh, representation there. and reminds me of Moses who had the same problem where his face was too bright and he veiled his face uh, in a similar fashion because seeing God's face again is fatal to sinful man. So we have this veil uh, to divide the room and remind us of that fact. So I've already said that. Let's move on. Here I have made a schema of the side view, and the priest, of course, will be coming in here to the altar where he puts the censer of incense, and he has a blood ritual where he sprinkles the blood into the burning coals. Now, as an aside, if you dip your finger, fingers in the sink and you shake into the sink, invariably what happens? In your bathroom. Does all the water go back in the sink? Some of it goes on the mirror, some of it goes on the counter, some of it goes on, the Right? And so when the priest sprinkled the blood and rubbed it on the horns, the sprinkling motion in particular probably spatters the veil and the altar and et cetera, you know. And hence that idea of getting a mess that needs cleansing. Now again, we're going to come back to this, but the priest bears the sin through the blood in that transfer, so we're going to come back to that in a minute. So when the priest burns the incense here, what happens? The smoke goes up, and at least part of that smoke does what? Over into here. So we'll schema to the nose of God, so to speak. Now, perhaps because I was raised vegetarian, but I've never liked the smell of burning barbecue. Burnt blood and burnt fat doesn't smell the best to me. When... You sprinkle it, though, into frankincense and whatever else is burning on that altar. By the time it gets in here, what's it smell like? Probably like the frankincense. The incense absorbs the stench and it's a sweet savor. The righteousness of Christ absorbs and cleanses our sin and presents us as a sweet savor uh, to God. Okay? And what happens in here, the focus here is on the burning incense and blood ritual, not so much on the sacrifice. That sacrifice is already done. But the golden altar is that destination of the sin being transferred to the sanctuary because the priest bears or carries it two ways. One was through the blood, collect the blood in a little bowl or something and take it in, or Sometimes for efficiency, they might do several sacrifices and the priest would eat a small piece of the roasted flesh and take the sin onto himself that way and then go into the sanctuary and through the blood ritual later in the day, transfer it all uh, in there. But again, emphasizing that separation, which is renouncing, I want to get rid of this. I don't want to keep doing it. Here, you take it and get rid of it. uh, Sense there. And it's taken to the altar of incense. And this blood ritual of rubbing on the horns and so forth, what is going on here? The wages of sin is. Feel free to come on up. We're not. uh, We've got some handout uh, note taking paper there in the middle if you wish. What's going on here? Some people recoil from this presentation of blood, it seems, to their, quote, civilized mind, unquote, barbaric. Um, Yeah, we don't serve a bloodthirsty god, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the wages of sin is death, which is a court-imposed penalty from God's court. So to release the sinner, we've got to deal with the justice issue. Forgiveness never subverts justice. In forgiveness, the forgiver is the one who satisfies the cost of justice for a purpose that will come to shortly. So what the priest is doing is he is presenting the evidence that the substitute died, that the penalty was paid, that the death had been enacted, that this sinner has separated from his sin, that sin was punished now in the substitute. See, here's the blood, it died, the penalty has been paid, and it's at that point, when the evidence is presented to God that the penalty is paid, that God says, I keep my promise, he's forgiven. And so in this ritual in Leviticus, um, we have this repeated formula, uh, especially in chapters 4 and 5 and a little bit in 6, and the, the priest shall make atonement for them, and they shall be forgiven. Notice they weren't forgiven when the lamb or a goat died. They were forgiven after the priest does the blood ritual to present the evidence of the death to the eyes of God over the veil, right? So forgiveness happens when the priest unites the evidence of the sacrificial substitutionary death to that sinner's name and says, here, God. And God says, good, we're covered. So it's only then, this I think has implications, it's only then that sin is forgiven. The golden altar is where the priest makes atonement, as I said, by presenting the evidence. Hebrews 7 to 9 reviews and explains that typology of the altar, applying it to Christ. And Hebrews 7, again, specifically mentions the priestly intercession. He, quote, ever lives to make intercession for us. Here's the question now. I want to be careful of what I say, but I'll ask it provocatively. If everything was finished on the cross, why do I need intercession Something was finished on the cross, the payment of the penalty. And a little technicality here. We use atonement, the word atonement, two ways. And Ellen White uses it both ways. One, we use it for the payment of the penalty. And so in that sense, atonement was finished on the cross. The penalty is paid. There's no more ongoing payment, right? And Ellen White makes statements to that effect. You know, the complete and full atonement of Christ on the cross. Paid the penalty. But then there's also atonement as a process based on that sacrifice with the ongoing effects. And that's still in in the works, right? It's still in process. So on the one hand, atonement is finished. On the other hand, it's not finished, depending on how you use your language. And so when you're dealing with an evangelical friend, You have to be careful because they think of atonement as the penalty part, not the process part. And so they think you're undermining the cross if you say there's more atonement work going on. But we have to reckon with this problem. If it's all done at the cross, why do I need an intercessor? And since the earthly was copied after the heavenly, I need a priest to mediate that to God and present the evidence to attach that blood to me. And then the declaration is given. And since I haven't stopped sinning yet, I need to keep asking that priest to represent me. That's why he ever lives to make intercession. That's not an excuse for sin. You know, John says, I write this that you may not sin, but if you do, we have an advocate, right? And so um, we don't justify it, but we recognize there may be a growth process there. And in 1 Peter, we become assisting priests leading sinners to God. The point is, forgiveness doesn't happen based on sacrifice alone. It requires the work of the priest to bring about forgiveness So in a geographic sense, forgiveness does not happen out at the sacrifice altar. It happens at the inner altar in interaction with the throne of God. And I think this is very important because if you don't have the intercessory work of the priest, then you can go to a theology that says, well, it was all done at the cross. It doesn't matter what I do, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas if there's an ongoing healing process we're to be involved with, now it makes a difference. Um, That way. So, the sinner believes, confesses, transfers the sin. Jesus, take it, and on it goes to the heavenly sanctuary where Christ presents his evidence of his death, and God then forgives us in the here and now. So again, we approach God through Christ, through the sacrifice, through the priestly ministry, and we can pray our way through all of these steps uh, and thank God that we have the sure answer. But that leaves us some other Um, issues, and I need to jump now to here. I want to focus a bit more on this transfer of sin. Because in some corners of Adventism, it is argued that transfer of sin is illegal and unethical, and therefore Christ has to bear sin by other means. In biblical theology and Jewish culture of that day, when you laid your hands on something and talked, you were transferring or conferring something. So we have the birthright blessing. For example, in Genesis, remember when Joseph brings his two sons to his father and his father crosses his hands and Joseph is upset? But why is he laying hands and talking? He's passing a blessing. Through that laying on of the hand, he's transferring something. Likewise, Paul, a good Jew, good Jewish rabbi, finds these guys at Ephesus who have never heard of the Holy Spirit and who were baptized only in the John's baptism. And so he ends up laying his hands on them. And Paul, who has the Holy Spirit, in this Jewish ritual lays hands, and the Spirit transfers, and they get the Holy Spirit. So this is a very Jewish Old Testament way. Very interesting case here in Leviticus 24, the blasphemy case, where we have an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, gets into a fight, and he blasphemes the name, verse 11, and cursed, so they bring him to Moses, and they give the names, and they put him in custody and waiting for God to give direction. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard them lay their hands on his head. Then let all the congregation stone him. Why are those who heard him laying hands? Jewish mind, what are they doing? They're transferring something back to this guy. What are they transferring? The defilement, the corruption that came from being exposed to something that they didn't ask for. And so this was their way of saying, I don't want this. This was forced on me, and I didn't want my ears to hear that, but I heard it. Here, you have it back, and now when it's all back on you, out you go. So you see that transfer motion. I also think there's an important lesson here. Notice, they don't have to ask forgiveness, but they do have to reject. I go back, you know, a few years ago when I was a younger, notice I said younger, um, person than I am now. In the good old days, they didn't have the laws that made the gas stations and 7-Elevens put Playboy behind covers. And so you're running around to a strange gas station and go crashing through the door to pay your cash because we didn't have credit card at the pump in those days, right? He had to go in, pay inside, and you open the door, and oh boy, there's an Eiffel I wasn't expecting. That Eiffel has an impact on me whether I like it or not. And this tells me I need to you know, pay my bill, go out to the car and say, Lord, uh, I had something to hit me. I need you to cleanse me and help prevent that from doing further damage. And i you know, get it back on Satan, please, right? You know, Kind of a thing. So when the sinner lays his head on the lamb or the goat or whatever, and he confesses, there's no question, and you see this in the Day of Atonement, which I didn't put in my text. Um, um, and I got ahead of myself, but yes, we were just on this one here. The Day of Atonement um, ritual, Very, everyone recognizes that through taking the innocent blood into the sanctuary, he gathers up the sins, takes them out, and confesses them onto the head of the scapegoat. So it's obvious they saw the confession as... Moving the guilt and the sin onto this other uh, party. And again, the whole purpose is I'm not just looking to have my debt paid, I want to get rid of this problem. Because again, if you're rich and can afford the speeding tickets without losing your license, you can just pay, 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 pay. You know. It's not the purpose. Likewise, I'm just going to breeze through this quickly. You have this idea then of the guilt or the blood being on their head. In other words, they're accountable for themselves and you get it in several uh, places. I'll go to 1 Kings here where uh, Shimei is told not to leave the town of Jerusalem. If you leave, you'll be executed and your blood will be on your own head. In other words, it's your own fault, no one else's. Um, so So you have this idea of both the blood as the carrier but also of the guilt then coming down on you as a burden, and hence, um, in the Old Testament, sometimes forgiveness uses the verb for lifting. Not often, but sometimes, and here the um, uh, Jacob is sending emissaries to. Here's what to say to Esau. Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us, for he thought I may appease, the, Greek, uh, the Hebrew word is kafar, which is atom, Right? We get kippur, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, comes from kafar. Very interesting. So that I may atone him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterwards I shall see his face. Perhaps he will lift, forgive me. Even more so in the story of Joseph, you have it twice, I highlighted it once. Um, please yeah, lift, I forgot it here, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, etc. Now please lift the transgression. The idea is you have this weight like Pilgrim and Pilgrim's Progress that you're carrying and you want to get it off and get rid of it. And so God, I got this problem, I want to get rid of it but i can't get rid of it i need you to lift to remove and lift me up and hence again this idea of renouncing sin and asking god please lift it off me and this is where the labor then comes in i'm not just looking for a payment of penalty i am looking for cleansing for healing The question is, yes, but how? And here's where I'm changing my seminar slightly to bring the the rest of the furnishings up. And so the Day of Atonement will be the last two sessions now. Um, Interesting quote from Ellen White, and I see I didn't capture the reference. I think it's Patriarchs and Prophets, but you'll have to go dig it up. The showbread was thus kept ever before the Lord as a perpetual offering. Thus it was part of the daily sacrifice. It was called the showbread, or the bread of the presence. Because the golden altar is in the holy place, right? And we have two other furnishings. What do they have to do with this approach to God? It was an acknowledgement of man's dependence upon God for both temporal and spiritual food. So part of the cleansing, forgiving process is to say, God, I can't do this on my own. I have to rely on you. You're going to have to do for me what I can't do for myself, you're going to have to empower me to do what I'm powerless to do in my own power. And so that bread was a reminder of the bread from heaven that fell by faith, the manna, and your ongoing dependence for God to supply the spiritual nourishment, strength, and everything for this to work. And then the lampstand, quite a few scholars tie this as representation of the pillar of fire at night and the cloud by day. So the lamp leads us to the idea of divine guidance and revelation. And of course, Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. And so... We have healing by God giving us light and guidance, but also by relying on him instead of our own strength. And now I want to do a little excursus on that, because I think this is a very important point. Now, if you want the fullness of this slide, go to audio verse. I did a whole series on righteousness by faith for um, the Sabbath school at uh, Advent Hope at uh, Loma Linda, and you can get the whole, my whole testimony, everything on that. But I'm going to break it down very uh, briefly here. In Paul's theology, in Romans especially, we have what we call the two powers motif or theme. Motif is a fancy word for theme. And you see these powers most openly in Romans 5, though he starts introducing the one in Romans 3, when he says, I have contested that all men, both Jew and Gentile, are under sin. And you'll notice that in Romans, Paul mostly talks about sin, not sins. Much more sin. And you see him personify sin into an enslaving power. And this comes to a head in Romans 5. And in Romans 5.12, Paul says, sin, this power, came into the world through one man. And we know, and then death, its partner, comes in through sin. So we have the power set of sin and death. And he says, we know that this power spread to all men Because all men sin. So the fact that everyone sins shows that they are already a slave of sin. For Paul, you're first a slave of sin, then you sin. Except for Adam and Eve, of course, who became slaves of sin by sinning. The rest of us are born under the power of sin, and we need deliverance. And so Paul... He casts Christ as the new Adam and this new Adam brings a universal power set into the world that is the antidote to the power set Adam brought into the world. Oh, I get excited about this. What's that power set? Grace and righteousness. sin and grace are the two powers with their accompanying companions, death and righteousness. And the problem is we are born as a slave of sin and we can't deliver ourselves. We need help. Hence, we need the sacrifice, etc., etc. And the priest can't do it yourself, right? But through faith, we are transferred from being a slave of sin and death to being a slave of grace and righteousness and slave of Christ, as Paul likes to call it, right? By the way, in Paul's theology, there are really no free men. You're a slave of Christ, grace and righteousness, or you're a slave of sin and death. And this is a very important concept because you can try to change your behavior until you're blue in the face and it ain't going to work successfully consistently until you're born again and delivered by faith into a new master. And this is very, very, very important. And so thus Paul says in Romans 6, that if you have been baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ, and you are thus no longer a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. And therefore, he says, stop yielding your members as slaves to sin and start yielding, the righteousness. Let's think about this very carefully. He then goes to Romans 7, that infamous passage, right? The good I want to do, I can't, and so forth. And we have all sorts of arguments. Who is Paul talking about in Romans 7? He tells us in verse 14. He personifies the word I, ego in Greek, very unusual construction. I think he's treating ego like the self. And he says, Ego, I, self, is carnal, sold under sin. See, the law is spiritual. But ego is carnal, sold under sin. And this ego, we get our word ego from it, right? This ego sees the law of God, wants to do the law of God, but his slave master won't let him do it consistently. It doesn't matter whether you claim to be post-conversion, pre-conversion, this or that. If you're under slavery to sin, Paul says you can appreciate the good, but you're not going to be able to do it all. And what was his solution? Who shall deliver me from this by his deliverance? That separation of sinner from sin in the sanctuary is that separation from one slave master and going to a new one. And to be under grace is not to be free to do whatever you please. To be under grace is to be under the slave master that lets you do God's will. Here's the problem now. How many of us feel delivered all the time? I don't see any hands. And I'll put mine down because I don't feel delivered all the time either, right? But righteousness is by faith. And we have to trust that we're a new creature even when we don't feel like a new creature. So that faith in that promise, God is faithful. He who began the good work will finish it, etc., The one who said, I will forgive and cleanse, I don't feel cleansed, but I believe he's doing something. And even though I don't feel it, I'm dumb enough to believe it. And that belief governs my choice instead of how I feel. Very crucial principle. I spent years struggling with certain besetting sinner sins because I was waiting for the sense of empowerment to come on. I pray to God, Lord, here it comes. It's going to get me. I need your help, 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 help. Boom, fall. None of you have had that experience, right? I was waiting to feel something before I could do something. And the Lord says, no you're going to have to trust me in spite of how you feel and step out in raw, naked faith. Talk about coming, saying, is this a Jehu or not, you know? So all that is in that furnishings of the holy place where the sin is separated, God is forgiving it, but I have this reliance on God's guidance and on his sustenance and word, in spite of how I feel, to carry me forward. And I love to preach about the tension between faith and feeling, between faith and perception. And for the believer, faith is more reliable than what you see and what you feel. It's like flying on instruments with your aircraft. You feel like the airplane's doing this, banking left, but you look at your instruments and it says it's flying level, so you don't mess with the controls. Or you're in the soup and you feel like all is well, but your airplane says you're banked to the right. Do you trust what you feel or do you trust the instruments? Faith is like trusting the instruments. And the pilots who try to fly seat of the pants in the clouds break up the airplane because they get into a death spiral because you can't trust what you feel. It's the ones who ignore their feelings, acknowledge, all right, I feel like I'm turning right, but the instruments say I'm going straight, so I'm going to trust the instrument. The instrument will be the basis of my decision, not my feelings. Remember, I hadn't flown instruments for a while, and I was going back from above Detroit back to Andrews and got up into the clouds and man, I wandered all over the sky for the first 10 minutes until I got feelings out of the way and instruments back locked on. You know, Hebrews 10 is where I got this from. Because Paul uses the just shall live by faith in a very interesting way there. He opposes it to shrinking back. Normally when we hear the phrase, the just shall live by faith, we think Martin Luther, right? I know I don't earn it, etc. I come to Hebrews, I'm saying, wait a second, this this isn't making sense here. The just shall live by faith in Hebrews is perseverance, not justification. I'm saying, wait a second, that means I persevere by faith. Perseverance is a lifestyle choice. So righteousness by faith is not only receiving righteousness as a gift by faith, it is living it out by faith in what God says in spite of what I see and feel. Hence, I don't need to feel like a new creature to be one. I am one by faith, and that's the governing basis of life. Steps to Christ 51, one of the most powerful quotes. You're not supposed to make a one-sentence paragraph, but we give the prophet a license. Do not wait to feel that you are made whole. But say, I believe it. It is so, not because I feel it, but because God has promised. So let's get practical here. How are we going to handle temptation then? Because we've got to wrap this up. First of all, we have to claim the promise we're a new creature by faith. Lord, I don't feel like it, but you said it and I'm dumb enough to believe it. In spite of what I'm seeing and feeling. Secondly, this is the beauty of being a slave. You say to the devil, I'm not free to do as I please. You have to go talk to the slave master. Don't argue with the devil. Refer the argument to your slave master. Your job is to yield to your master, not to argue with the devil. The moment you try to argue with the devil, you're going to be sunk. Because he's too smart for you. Two examples. As a teenager, some friends at church invited me to a function that in my heart of hearts, I really knew a Christian ought not to be at. These professed Christians, right? But, you know, when you're 14, 15 years old, the peer pressure thing is tough, right? Right? So you want to say, no, I want to do the right thing, but boy, I don't want to get my friends ridiculing me and stuff, right? Is, is there an easy way out? We have to understand I grew up with very good but no-nonsense parents. I knew that hell would freeze over before they would give their permission for me to go to this event. So I told my friends, go talk to my mom and dad. If you can convince them to let me go, I'll go with you. Now my friends knew my mom and dad. That was the end of the conversation because they knew it was hopeless. But it was nice. Hey, I'd love to come with you, etc. But mom and dad, right? Their fault. You know. Devil, I'd love to go do that, but eh, Christ won't let me. His fault. Go argue with him, right? Isn't it wonderful to be able to blame someone else like that? Yeah. You know, being... Very practical here. It reminds me also of back before the armed forces cooperated with each other. Chuck Yeager, the famous test pilot, basically interrupted a Navy Blue Angels demonstration at Wright Air Force Base. He didn't like the Navy being at an Air Force facility. He got approached afterwards by a Navy Admiral who was purple with rage And the admiral screamed at him, If you were in the Navy, I would draw and quarter you. And Yeager said, Yes, sir, but I ain't in the Navy. And the point is, in those days, you didn't have the jurisdiction. So you can rant and rave all you want, but you have no jurisdiction over me because I belong to someone else. Go argue with him. And then I say here, use the second edge of the sword of the Spirit. Trick question, what's the sword of the Spirit? You got it half right. Now Eric's been in class. So he, I'm going to make put the gag order on him. Um, if you keep reading in that passage, see, Paul has a monster Greek sentence that we've broken up into several English sentences. So that period does us a disservice. Paul's not done with his thought. How does he continue after take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God? He starts telling us to pray, make supplications for all the saints, and also for me. What kind of prayer is that? Intercessory prayer is the second edge of the sword of the Spirit. If you fixate on your temptation during the temptation, you will fall. So you claim the promise, you're a new creature, give the argument to Christ, and get your mind off the temptation by praying for someone else's salvation. Prayer bombs Satan's kingdom with prayer. And it's amazing when you start praying for someone else, and particularly evangelistic intercessory prayer, how quickly... Satan backs off. When do we pray for ourselves? In the quiet time with God. That's when you go to God and say, Look, I'm weak, I can't handle this, I need help, etc., etc. You don't pray that way under attack. You pray that way in the quiet time with God. That's where you acknowledge your weakness, cry out for help, etc. In the battle, you got to go to the promise, refer the argument, and launch your prayer bombs into Satan's kingdom for someone in need of Christ um, that way. Now, all this sounds good, but how do we fuel faith? Paul said, faith cometh by hearing, because in his day we didn't have printing presses and so the word was read to the whole church, and hence people heard. But today we've got iBooks and iTunes and Kindles and printing presses and everything else, and so I like to modernize it and say, faith cometh by reading. This is where your devotional life, etc., comes in. If you don't have time in the word of God, temptation will come and you will say, I could claim the promise, refer the argument, etc., but I don't feel like it, and you start living by feelings again. And so the devotional life is the fuel of faith. That's when you pray for yourself, etc., etc. So, quick recap then. The light and the showbread remind us that we need more than a pronouncement of forgiveness. We need that moment-by-moment reliance upon God in faith, trusting His promise more than our own perceptions and feelings so that under the battle, we claim we're a new creature, we refer the argument to our slave master, we don't try to act like a free man. Not my will, but your will be done, right? We don't need the prayer of Jabez, we need the prayer of Jesus. And then get out that second edge of the sea. The first edge of the sword is the promise, right? You promise, Lord. The second edge of the sword is that intercessory prayer where you get your mind off yourself and prayer bomb and do as much damage to Satan's kingdom with that prayer as you can. I think you find that a very helpful tool in that process of the holy place experience and most holy place experience of your prayer life. All righty. Let's have prayer. I think we have about a 15-minute break, right? And actually about 20. So we can take four or five minutes for those who want to ask questions. But for those who want to get up and moving, I'll have prayer first. And then if you want to loiter and chat for a minute, um, et cetera. And then I believe 3.15, we're back on. Would that agree? With Mr. Lowe, you're the official GYC representative. But I believe 3.15 would be the correct time. The judge has spoken. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the good news that where sin increase, your grace abounds even more. May we come under that power of grace by faith and discover your power to argue with Satan and deliver us from his power. In Jesus' name, let God's people say This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.